In 2002, Ben Bernanke gave one of the most important speeches in the history of monetary theory. In the speech, Bernanke outlined the danger of deflation and how the Federal Reserve would do everything in its power to push back against a deflationary collapse similar to what the United States experienced in the Great Depression. Whether he intended to or not, Bernanke actually provided an extremely accurate roadmap of the Fed's actions in the global financial crisis, which would start about five years later. The speech's main point is clear. The federal government in general, and the Federal Reserve in particular, must do everything in their power to stop deflation from ever starting in the first place, and must be prepared to employ aggressive measures to that end. This may necessitate controlling the yield curve for government debt, an action that would have major ramifications in the financial sector. Bernanke also suggests propping up asset prices to improve household and business balance sheets, either indirectly through monetary policy or more directly through fiscal policy in order to sustain aggregate demand in the form of borrowing. Interestingly, Bernanke does not seem to view negative interest rates as a potential policy option. This is not surprising because the Eurozone did not implement negative rates until 2014, over a decade after this speech was given. Essentially, Bernanke suggests keeping asset prices and consumer prices rising by intervening in asset markets, as well as implementing yield curve control on government debt. In other words, the federal government's aim is to support aggregate demand largely by inflating real and financial asset prices. Stable assets financed with conservative debt are poised to thrive in this type of environment, and investing in multifamily syndications is a way to gain portfolio exposure to these types of assets. An investor must come to his or her own conclusions, but if we take Bernanke's words seriously, the federal government has stacked the deck in favor of asset price inflation. Here is Bernanke's speech in its entirety, given in November 2002, deflation, making sure it doesn't happen here. Since World War II, inflation, the apparently inexorable rise in the prices of goods and services, has been the bane of central bankers. Economists of various stripes have argued that inflation is the inevitable result of, pick your favorite, the abandonment of the metallic monetary standards, the lack of fiscal discipline, shocks to the price of oil and other commodities, struggles over the distribution of income, excessive money creation, self-confirming inflation expectations, and inflation bias in policies of central banks, and still others. Despite widespread inflation pessimism, however, during the 1980s and 1990s, most industrial countries' central banks were able to cage, if not entirely tame, the inflation dragon. Although a number of factors converged to make this happy outcome possible, an essential element was the heightened understanding by central bankers and, equally important, by political leaders and the public at large of the high costs of allowing the economy to stay too far from price stability. With inflation rates now quite low in the United States, however, some have expressed concern that we may soon face a new problem, the danger of deflation or falling prices. That is the concern that is not purely hypothetical and brought home to us whenever we, we read newspaper reports about Japan, where it seems to be a relatively moderate deflation 
a a decline in consumer prices of about 1% per year, and it's been associated with years of painfully slow growth, rising joblessness, and apparently intractable financial problems in the banking and corporate sectors. While it's difficult to sort out cause from effect, the consensus view is that deflation has been an important negative factor in the Japanese slump. So, is deflation a threat to the economic health of the United States? Not to leave you in suspense, I believe the chance of a significant deflation in the United States in the foreseeable future is extremely small, for two principal reasons. The first is the resilience and structural stability of the U.S. economy itself. Over the years, the U.S. economy has shown a remarkable ability to absorb shocks of all kinds, to recover, and to continue to grow. Flexible and efficient markets for labor and capital, an entrepreneurial tradition, and a general willingness to tolerate and even embrace technological and economic change all contribute to this resiliency. A particularly important protective factor in the current environment is the strength of our financial system. Despite the adverse shocks of the past year, our banking system remains healthy, well-regulated, and firm and uh, household balance sheets are for the most part in good shape. Also helped, helpful is that inflation has recently not only been quite low and stable, with one result being that inflation expectations seem well anchored. For example, according to the University of Michigan survey that underlies the index of consumer sentiment, the median expected rate of inflation during the next 5 to 10 years among those interviewed was 2.9% in October 2002, as compared to 2.7% a year earlier and 3.0% two years earlier. A stable record indeed. The second bulwark against deflation in the United States, and the one that will be the focus of my remarks today, is the Federal Reserve System itself. The Congress has given the Fed the responsibility of preserving price stability, among other objectives, which most definitely implies avoiding deflation as well as inflation. I am confident that the Fed would take whatever means necessary to prevent significant deflation in the United States and, moreover, that the U.S. Central Bank, in cooperation with other parts of the government as needed, has the sufficient policy instruments to ensure that any deflation that might occur would be both mild and brief. Of course, we must take care lest confidence become overconfidence. Deflationary episodes are rare and generalization about them is difficult. Indeed, a recent Federal Reserve study of the Japanese experience concluded that the deflation there was almost entirely unexpected, both by foreign uh, investors and Japanese observers alike. So, having said that deflation in the United States is highly unlikely, it would be imprudent to rule out the possibility altogether. Accordingly, I want to turn a further exploration of the causes of deflation, its economic effects, and the policy instruments that can be deployed against it. Before going further, I should say that my comments today reflect my own views only and are not necessarily those of my colleagues at the Board of Governors or the Federal Open Market Committee. Deflation, its causes and effects. Deflation is defined as a general decline in prices, with emphasis on the word general. At any given time, especially in a low inflation economy like the one of our recent experience, prices of some goods and services will be falling. Price declines in a specific sector may occur because productivity is rising 
and costs are falling more quickly in that sector than elsewhere, or because the demand for the output of that sector is weak relative to the demand for other goods and services. Sector-specific price declines, uncomfortable as they may be for producers in that sector, are generally not a problem for the economy as a whole and do not constitute deflation. Deflation per se occurs only when price declines are so widespread that broad-based indices of prices, such as the Consumer Price Index, register ongoing declines. The sources of deflation are not a mystery. Deflation is in all cases a side effect of a collapse in aggregate demand, a drop in spending so severe that producers must cut prices on an ongoing basis in order to find buyers. Likewise, the economic effects of a deflationary episode, for the most part, are similar to those of any other sharp decline in aggregate spending, namely recession, rising unemployment, and financial stress. However, a deflationary recession may differ in one respect from normal recessions in which the inflation rate is at least modestly positive. Deflation of sufficient magnitude may result in the nominal interest rate declining to zero or very close to zero. Once the nominal interest rate is at zero, no further downward adjustment in the rate can occur, since lenders generally will not accept a negative nominal rate when it's possible instead to hold cash. At this point, the nominal interest rate is said to have hit the zero bound. Deflation great enough to bring the nominal interest rate close to zero poses special problems for the economy and for policy. First, when the nominal interest rate has been reduced to zero, the real interest rate paid by borrowers equals the expected rate of deflation, however large that might be. To take what might seem like an extreme example, though in fact it occurred in the United States in the early 1930s, suppose that deflation is proceeding at a clip of 10% per year. Then someone who borrows for a year at a nominal interest rate of zero actually faces a 10% real cost of funds, as the loan must be repaid in dollars whose purchasing power is 10% greater than the dollars originally borrowed. In a period of sufficiently severe deflation, the real cost of borrowing becomes prohibitive. Capital investment, purchases of new homes, and other types of spending decline accordingly, worsening the economic downturn. Although deflation and the zero bound on nominal interest rates creates a significant problem for those seeking to borrow, they impose an even greater burden on households and firms that have accumulated substantial debt before the onset of deflation. This burden arises because, even if debtors are able to refinance their existing obligations at low nominal interest rates, with prices falling, they must still repay the principal in dollars of increasing, perhaps rapidly increasing, real value. When William Jennings Bryan made his famous Cross of Gold speech in his 1896 presidential campaign, he was speaking on behalf of heavily mortgaged farmers whose debt burdens were growing ever larger in real terms, the result of a sustained deflation that followed America's post-Civil War return to the gold standard. The financial distress of debtors can, in turn, increase the fragility of the nation's financial system. For example, by leading to a rapid increase in the share of bank loans that are delinquent or in default. Japan in recent years has certainly faced the problem of debt deflation, the deflation-induced, ever-increasing real value of debts. Closer to home, massive financial problems, including defaults, 
bankruptcies, and bank failures were endemic in America's worst encounter with deflation in the years between 1930 and 1933, a period which, as I mentioned, the U.S. price level fell about 10% per year. Beyond its adverse effects in financial markets and on borrowers, the zero bound on nominal interest rates raises another concern, the limitation that it places on conventional monetary policy. Under normal conditions, the Fed and most other central banks implement policy by setting a target for short-term interest rates, the overnight federal funds rate in the United States, and enforcing that target by buying and selling securities in open capital markets. When the short-term rate hits zero, the central bank can no longer ease policy by lowering its usual interest rate target. Because central banks conventionally conduct monetary policy by manipulating the short-term nominal interest rate, some observers have concluded that when the key rate stands at or near zero, the central bank has, quote, run out of ammunition. That is, it no longer has the power to expand aggregate demand and hence economic activity. It is true that once the policy rate has been driven down to zero, a central bank can no longer use its traditional means of stimulating aggregate demand and thus will be operating in less familiar territory. The central bank's inability to use its traditional methods may complicate the policymaking process and induce uncertainty in the size and timing of the economy's response to policy actions. Hence, I agree that the situation is one to be avoided, if possible. However, a principal message of my talk today is that a central bank whose accustomed, to policy, whose accustomed policy rate has been forced down to zero is most definitely not out of ammunition. As I will discuss, a central bank, either alone or in cooperation with other parts of the government, retains considerable power to expand aggregate demand and economic activity, even when its accustomed policy rate is at zero. In the remainder of my talk, I will first discuss measures preventing deflation, the preferable option if feasible. I will then turn to policy measures that the Fed and the other government authorities can take if prevention efforts fail and deflation appears to be gaining a foothold in the economy. As I've already emphasized, deflation is generally the result of low and falling aggregate demand. The basic prescription for preventing deflation is therefore straightforward, at least in principle. Use monetary and fiscal policy as needed to support aggregate spending in a manner as nearly consistent as possible with full utilization of economic resources and low to stable inflation. In other words, the best way to get out of trouble is to not get in trouble in the first place. Beyond this common sense injunction, however, there are several measures that the Fed or any central bank can take to reduce the risk of falling into deflation. First, the Fed, must, uh, the Fed should try to preserve a buffer zone for the inflation rate. That is, during normal times, it should not try to push inflation down all the way to zero. Most central banks seem to understand the need for a buffer zone. For example, central banks with explicit inflation targets almost invariably set their inflation target above zero, generally between 1% and 3% per year. Maintaining an inflation buffer zone reduces the risk that a large, unanticipated drop in aggregate demand will drive the economy far enough into deflationary territory to lower the nominal interest rate to zero, 
Of course, this benefit of having a buffer zone for inflation must be weighed against the costs associated with allowing a higher inflation rate in normal times. Second, the Fed should take most seriously, and of course it does, its responsibility to ensure financial stability in the economy. Irving Fisher in 1933 was perhaps the first economist to emphasize the potential connections between violent financial crises, which lead to fire sales of assets and falling asset prices, with general declines in aggregate demand and the price level. A healthy, well-capitalized banking system and smoothly functioning capital markets are an important line of defense against deflationary shocks. The Fed should and does use its regulatory and supervisory powers to ensure that the financial system will remain resilient if financial conditions change rapidly. And at times of extreme threat to financial stability, the Federal Reserve stands ready to use the discount window and other tools to protect the financial system, as it did during the 1987 stock market crash and the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. Third, as suggested by a number of studies, when inflation is already low and the fundamentals of the economy suddenly deteriorate, the central bank should act more preemptively and more aggressively than usual in cutting rates. By moving decisively and early, the Fed may be able to prevent the economy from slipping into deflation with the special problems that entails. As I've indicated, I believe that the combination of strong economic fundamentals and policymakers that are attentive to the downside as well as the upside risks of inflation makes significant deflation in the United States in the foreseeable future quite unlikely. But suppose that, despite all precautions, deflation were to take hold in the U.S. economy and, moreover, that the Fed's policy interest instrument, the federal funds rate, were to fall to zero. What then? In the remainder of my talk, I will discuss some possible options for stopping a deflation once it's gotten underway. I should emphasize that my comments on this topic are necessarily speculative, as the modern Federal Reserve has never faced this situation, nor has it pre-committed itself formally to any specific course of action should deflation arise. Furthermore, the specific response the Fed would undertake would presumably depend on a number of factors, including its assessment of the whole range of risks to the economy and any complementary policies being undertaken by other parts of the U.S. government. Curing Deflation Let me start with some general observations about monetary policy at the zero bound, sweeping under the rug for the moment some technical and operational issues. As I've mentioned, some observers have concluded that when the central bank's policy rate falls to zero, its practical minimum, monetary policy loses its ability to further stimulate aggregate demand in the economy. At a broad conceptual level, and in my view in practice as well, this conclusion is clearly mistaken. Indeed, under a fiat money system, a government in practice a central bank in cooperation with other agencies should always be able to generate increased nominal spending and inflation even when the short-term nominal interest rate is at zero. The conclusion that deflation is always reversible under a fiat monetary system follows from basic economic reasoning. A little parable may prove useful. Today, an ounce of gold sells for about $300, more or less. Now suppose that a modern alchemist solves this, uh, his subject's oldest problem by finding a way to produce unlimited amounts of new gold at essentially no cost. Moreover, his invention is widely publicized and scientifically verified, 
and he announces his intention to begin massive production of gold within days. What would happen to the price of gold? Presumably, the potential unlimited supply of cheap gold would cause the market price of gold to plummet. Indeed, if the market for gold is to any degree efficient, the price of gold would collapse immediately after the announcement of the invention before the alchemist had produced and marketed a single ounce of the yellow metal. So what's this got to do with monetary policy? Like gold, U.S. dollars have value only to the extent that they are strictly limited in supply. But the U.S. government has a technology called a printing press, or today it's electronic equivalent, that allows it to produce as many U.S. dollars as it wishes at essentially no cost. By increasing the number of U.S. dollars in circulation, or even by credibly threatening to do so, the U.S. government can reduce the value of a dollar in terms of goods and services, which is equivalent to raising the price of dollars of those goods and services. We conclude that, under a paper money system, a determined government can always generate higher spending, and hence positive inflation. Of course, the U.S. government is not going to print money and distribute it willy-nilly, although, as we'll see later, there are practical policies to approximate this behavior. Normally, money is injected into the economy through asset purchases by the Federal Reserve. To stimulate aggregate spending when short-term interest rates have reached zero, the Fed must expand the scale of its asset purchases or, possibly, expand the menu of assets it buys. Alternatively, the Fed could find other ways of injecting money into the system, for example, by making low interest rates loans to banks or cooperating with the fiscal authorities. Each method of adding money to the economy has advantages and drawbacks, both technical and economic. One important concern in practice is that calibrating the economic effects of non-standard means of by non-standard means of injecting money may be difficult, given our relative lack of experience with such policies. Thus, as I've already stressed, preventing deflation remains preferable to having to cure it. If we do fall into deflation, however, we can take comfort in the basic logic that the printing press example must assert itself, and sufficient injections of money will ultimately always reverse deflation. So, what then must the Fed do if its target interest rate, the overnight Fed funds rate, falls to zero? One relatively straightforward extension of current procedures would be to try to stimulate spending by lowering rates further out along the Treasury term structure, that is, rates on government bonds of longer maturities. There are also at least two ways of bringing down longer-term rates, which are complementary and could be employed separately or in combination. One approach, similar to an action taken in the past couple of years by the Bank of Japan, would be for the Fed to commit to holding the overnight rate at zero for some specified period. Because long-term rates represent averages of current and expected future short-term rates, plus a term premium, a commitment to keep short-term rates at zero for some time, if it were credible, would induce a decline in longer-term rates. A more direct method, which I personally prefer, would be for the Fed to begin announcing explicit ceilings on yields on longer maturity, maturity treasury debt, say bonds maturing within the next two years. The Fed could enforce these interest rate ceilings by committing to make unlimited purchases of securities up to two years from the maturity at prices consistent with the targeted yields. If this program were successful, not only would yields on medium-term treasuries fall, but because of the links operating through expectations of future interest rates, yields on longer-term public and private debt, such as mortgages, would likely fall as well. 
Lower rates over the maturity spectrum of public and private securities should strengthen aggregate demand in the usual ways and thus help end deflation. Of course, if operating in relatively short-dated treasury debt proved insufficient, the Fed could also attempt to cap yields on treasury securities at still longer maturities, say three to six years. Yet another option would be for the Fed to use its existing authority to operate in markets for agency debt, for example, mortgage-backed securities issued by Fannie Mae, the government uh, National Mortgage Association. Historical experience tends to support the proposition that a sufficiently determined Fed can peg or cap treasury bond prices and yields at other than the shortest maturities. The most striking episode of bond price pegging occurred during the years before the Federal Reserve Treasury Accord of 1951. Prior to that agreement, which freed the Fed from its responsibility to fix yields on government debt, the Fed maintained a ceiling of 2.5% on long-term treasury bonds for near, nearly a decade. Moreover, it simultaneously established a ceiling on the 12-month treasury certificate between uh, 7.8% to 1.25%, and during the first half of that period, a rate of 3.8% on the 90-day treasury bill. The Fed was able to achieve these low rates, despite a level of outstanding government debt relative to GDP significantly greater than we have today, as well as inflation rates sufficiently more variable. At times, in order to enforce these low rates, the Fed had to actually purchase the bulk of the outstanding 90-day bills. Interestingly, though, the Fed enforced the 2.5% ceiling on long-term bond yields for nearly a decade without ever holding a substantial share of long-maturity bonds outstanding. For example, the Fed held 7.0% of outstanding treasury securities in 1945 and 9.2% in 1951, the year of the accord, almost entirely in the form of 90-day bills. By comparison, in 2001, the Fed held 9.7% of the stock of outstanding treasury debt. To repeat, I suspect that operating on rates on longer-term treasuries would, would provide sufficient leverage for the Fed to achieve its goals in the most plausible scenarios. If lowering yields on longer dated treasury securities proved insufficient to restart spending, however, the Fed might need to consider attempting to influence directly the yields on the privately issued securities. Unlike some central banks and barring changes to the current law, the Fed is relatively restricted in its ability to buy private securities directly. However, the Fed does have broad powers to lend to, private, to the private sector indirectly via banks through the discount window. Therefore, a second policy action, complementary to operating in markets for treasury and agency debt, would be for the Fed to offer fixed-term loans to banks at low or zero interest rates with a wide range of private assets, including, among others, corporate bonds, commercial paper, bank loans, and mortgages deemed eligible as collateral. For example, the Fed might make 90-day or 180-day uh, zero-interest loans to banks, taking corporate commercial paper of the same maturity as collateral. Pursued aggressively, such a program could significantly reduce liquidity and term premiums on assets used as collateral. Reductions in these premiums would lower the cost of capital, both to banks and the non-bank private sector, over and above the beneficial effect already conferred by lower interest rates on government securities. The Fed can inject money into the economy in still other ways. For example, the Fed has the authority to buy foreign government debt as well as domestic government debt, potentially 
This class of assets offers huge scope for Fed operations, as the quantity of foreign assets eligible for purchase by the Fed is several times the stock of the U.S. government debt. I need to tread carefully here because the economy is a complex and interconnected system. Fed purchases on liabilities of foreign governments have the potential to affect a number of financial markets, including the market for foreign exchange. In the United States, the Department of the Treasury, not the Federal Reserve, is the lead agency for making international economic policy, including policy towards the dollar. And the Secretary of the Treasury has expressed the view that the determination of the value of the U.S. dollar should be left to free market forces. Moreover, since the United States is a large, relatively closed economy, manipulating the exchange value of the dollar would not be a particularly desirable way to fight domestic inflation, particularly given the range of other options available. Thus, I want to be absolutely clear that I am today neither forecasting nor recommending any attempt by U.S. policymakers to target the international value of the dollar. Although a policy of intervening to affect the exchange value of the dollar is nowhere on the horizon today, it's worth noting that there have been several times when exchange policy has been an effective weapon against deflation. A striking example from U.S. history is Franklin Roosevelt's 40% devaluation of the dollar against gold in 1933 and 1934, enforced by a program of gold purchases and domestic money creation. The devaluation and the rapid increase in the money supply is permit, uh, it permitted and ended U.S. deflation quite quickly. Indeed, consumer price inflation in the United States, year on year, went from negative 10.3% in 1932 to negative 5.1% in 1933 to positive 3.4% in 1934. The economy grew strongly, and by the way, 1934 was one of the best years of the century for the stock market. If nothing else, the episode illustrates that monetary actions can have powerful effects on the economy even when the nominal interest rate is at or near zero, as was the case in the time of Roosevelt's devaluation. Fiscal Policy Each of the policy options I have discussed so far have involved the Fed's acting on its own. In practice, the effectiveness of anti-deflation policy could be significantly enhanced by cooperation between the monetary and fiscal authorities. A broad-based tax cut, for example, accommodated by a program of open market purchases to alleviate any tendency for interest rates to increase, would almost certainly be an effective stimulant to consumption and hence to prices. Even if households decided not to increase consumption, but instead rebalance their portfolios by using extra cash to acquire real and financial assets, the resulting increase in asset values would lower the cost of capital and improve the balance sheet positions of potential borrowers. A money finance tax cut is essentially equivalent to Milton Friedman's famous helicopter drop of money. Of course, in lieu of tax cuts or increases in transfers, the government could increase spending on current goods and services or even acquire existing real or financial assets. If the Treasury issued debt to purchase private assets, and the Fed then purchased an equal amount of Treasury debt with newly created money, the whole operation would be the economic equivalent of a direct open market operation in private assets. Japan The claim that deflation can be ended by sufficiently strong actions has no doubt led you to wonder, if that's the case, why has Japan not ended its deflation? The Japanese situation is complex, so I can't fully discuss it today. 
I will just make two brief general points. First, as you know, Japan's economy faces some significant barriers to growth besides deflation, including massive financial problems in the banking and corporate sectors and a large overhang of government debt. Plausibly, private sector financial problems have muted the effects of the monetary policies that have been tried in Japan, even as the heavy overhang of government debt has made Japanese policymakers more reluctant to use aggressive fiscal policies. Fortunately, the U.S. economy does not share these problems, or at least anything like them to the same degree, suggesting that anti-deflationary monetary and fiscal policies would be more potent here than they would be in Japan. Second, and more important, I believe that, when all is said and done, the failure to end deflation in Japan does not necessarily reflect any technical infeasibility of achieving that goal. Rather, it's a byproduct of a long-standing political debate about how to best address Japan's overall economic problems. As the Japanese certainly realize, both restoring banks and corporations to solvency and implementing significant structural change are necessary for Japan's long-run economic health. But in the short run, comprehensive economic reform will likely impose large costs on many, for example, in the form of unemployment or bankruptcy. As a natural result, politicians, economists, business people, and the general public in Japan have, have sharply disagreed about competing proposals for reform. In the resulting political deadlock, strong policy actions are discouraged and cooperation among policymakers is difficult to achieve. In short, Japan's deflationary problem is real and serious, but in my view, political constraints rather than the lack of available policy instruments explain why its deflation has persisted for as long as it has. Thus, I do not view the Japanese experience as evidence against the general conclusion that U.S. policymakers have the tools they need to prevent and, if necessary, to cure a deflationary recession in the United States. Conclusion Sustained deflation can be highly destructive to a modern economy and should be strongly resisted. Fortunately, for the foreseeable future, the chances of a serious deflation in the United States appear to be remote indeed, in large part because our economy's underlying strengths, but also because of the determination of the Federal Reserve and other U.S. policy makers to act preemptively against deflationary pressures. Moreover, as I've discussed here today, a variety of policy responses are available should deflation appear to take hold. Because some of these alternative policy tools are relatively less familiar, they may raise practical problems of implementation and of calibration of their likely economic effects. For this reason, as I've emphasized, prevention of deflation is preferable to the cure. Nevertheless, I hope we have persuaded you that the Federal Reserve and other economic policymakers would be far from helpless in the face of deflation, even should the federal funds rate hit the zero bound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Multifamily Economics. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes, which will increase our visibility and help us grow. If you would like to discuss multifamily investing with me personally, please go to our website, darbyrosecapital.com. Thank you.